Well, good morning to First Evan. I like that. I feel the energy, so I think I'm ready. Um, before doing some introduction, you can turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 through 12. And while you're turning there, I just want to say thank you so much uh, to Pastor Cole. I know who's not here, Pastor Parks and all of the elders, uh, for having me. Pastor Cole and I have become friends over the years. He was my mentor when I went through Nexus out of second prayers. And since then, we've just established a friendship that I'm very, very grateful for. Also today, I have with me my, my, my wife and my son, uh, married 18 years, and my son who's, who's, who's about to finish high school, but moving on into that next phase of life. So we are, we are glad to be able to worship with you this morning. In my prayer time, I was sitting there thinking about this. On Sundays, you know, I'm up the street at Fellowship. I pass at the campus down the street. But it's always good for me to be reminded that even though we worship in separate local congregations, that one day when we're before the throne, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be people from all different backgrounds, ethnic groups, cultures, worshiping the king. And all of the things that we struggle with in this life will be no more, uh, that we will be with one another. So I'm glad to be with you today. So I hope you're at Mark chapter 2. Uh, we'll read the first 12 verses. I'm reading from the CSB this morning, so I hope no one gets thrown off if you have a different translation, but this is where I will be uh, as we continue to look, as we begin to look at God's word. Mark chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 12. The word of God says this. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no, no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astonished and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. In the late 1860s, Right here in Memphis, something happened with one individual that should have never taken place. It was odd. It's on the heels of the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the slaves, an African-American, a former slave, became a millionaire right here in this city. And his name was Robert Church. On one particular Sunday afternoon, he and a bunch of his friends were standing on a street corner here in the city. And a policeman, a white policeman, came up to him and his friends and told them to disperse. But Robert Church was a man who didn't fall into the, con the, the, the conveniences of his day. He did not just go with the old order. He and his friends refused to. 
This angered the white policeman where that policeman took a gun and hit Robert Church over the head, drug him to jail. But because Robert Church had resources, he was able to hire a lawyer and evade any formal charges. See, Robert Church, he was a black man in Jim Crow South in the 1860s, and he did not follow the conventions of his day. He stepped beyond the place that was reserved for him. It's like the people of his day said, how in the world does he think he could behave the way he's behaving? Who does he think he is? I think when we look at the scriptures today, I think we must ask this question when we come to Mark chapter 2. And I believe that the people who would read this and the religious leaders would have asked this same question. Who in the world does Jesus think he is? He can't go around telling someone that their sins are forgiven. Why in the world was, why would he say something like that? And so I think for us, we must ask ourselves a question. How do we see Jesus today? Do we see him as merely one who had good teachings? Do we see him as someone who just went around doing some really good things? You know, do we see Jesus as someone who who did not follow the conventions of his day? I think when we come to the Gospels and read any of the Gospels, we would see that Jesus is so much more. Now, who is this gospel written for? Mark's gospel was written for people who lived outside of the land of Israel, for believers who were under hard rule in Rome, believers who had never witnessed the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these were people who experienced great persecution at the hand of Emperor Nero. Nero would do stuff like this, like if because he hated Christians, he would take Christians, put them in a coliseum with some hungry animals waiting and unleash those animals to tear those Christians to shreds. Or when he had his parties at night to make sure he had enough lighting, he would tar Christians and set them on fire to use them as night lamps. It was these believers who would read this gospel. And when they read this gospel, they would read about Jesus who had even more authority than Nero. How do I know that? Because when Jesus would tell a demon to get out, the demon had to obey. When there was someone who was sick, Jesus would tell that sickness, you have to move and sickness would get out of the way. They saw in Jesus one who had way more authority than Emperor Nero, but they also saw in Jesus someone who understood their plight, who understood what it was like to be persecuted, right? Because Jesus suffered at the hands of lawless and wicked men. We know the story. We celebrate it each and every week. We serve a God who chose to tuck himself in a dirt suit, put on skin, come to this earth to die for you and for me. They hung him on that rugged cross, as I heard my the church mother say in the church I grew up in. He was on that cross a few hours, gave up the ghost, died. They put him in a borrowed tomb, but three days later, he dusted his shoulders off and said, Death, you can't hold me. I'm victorious. See, they would see a Jesus who had more authority and who was acquainted, well acquainted with even the persecution that they were experiencing. So as we turn our attention to Mark chapter 2, We have the story of a paralyzed man. We don't know how long he was paralyzed. We don't know why he was in a condition, but he was paralyzed. We see four friends who decided our friend needs Jesus. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Our friend needs Jesus. And we see religious leaders who get upset 
because they heard Jesus say something that they think he should never have said. Now, I believe that the Holy Spirit has given us this section of scripture to show us all that the ultimate need of humanity is to have our sins forgiven. That is the ultimate need. See, in this life, we could have money longer than train smoke. We can have physical healing. We can have all of the things and all of the amenities that life says that you need. But if you die without placing your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, what benefit is that to you and I? Jesus would deal with this in Mark chapter 8 verse 36 where he said this. He said, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's not the the most important thing for us is not to worry about what we're going to get in this life. Yes, the Lord wants to meet our needs in this life, but this is not the ultimate importance for us. The ultimate importance for all of humanity is to have our sins forgiven and only Jesus can do that. So this morning, let's walk through this pericope, this narrative, and let's just see the story because I think it's a beautiful story. This morning, I would love to tag this text. How do you see Jesus? And before going further into the text, I would like to ask God, God's help in this moment. Let's pray. Father, your word is opened. And I'm reminded what Paul would say in 2 Timothy, that all scripture is God breathed and is profitable. My prayer for us, Lord God, is that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to understand, not just to get more information, but that we would be obedient, that we will find something in this text to obey, not tomorrow, not next week, but today. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So what I want to do is turn our attention to verse four and let's see how these four friends overcame obstacles. Verse four simply says this. It says, since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Now, in reading the gospel of Mark here in the section, I want to point our attention to three groups of people. The first group would be the disciples. Now, we see nothing of the disciples in this text, but we must understand that the disciples were in the room. Because in Mark 3.14, the Bible would say that Jesus called the disciples to be with him. And if you look at chapter 1, Jesus called some disciples to be with him, to follow him. So disciples were in this crowd. Another would be the crowds themselves, those who wanted to hear of Jesus. And then you had the religious leaders. Now, when we read the Gospel of Mark, I don't know how many of you like movies, but this reads like an action movie. It doesn't waste time with with frivolous information. It gets straight to work. It starts out like skipping the credits. It gets right to action because Mark wants us to see Jesus' divinity more through his actions rather than simply his words. Now, when we look at the chapter of chapter one of Mark, we would see Jesus around verse 20, 21, 22. He's in a synagogue in Capernaum. And in this synagogue, the Bible would say that he's teaching. He's teaching in a way that the people were amazed because in verse 22, it says they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. See, the way Jesus taught was evident that he didn't come like the the people who came before him. 
He taught with a different kind of authority. John MacArthur in his commentary said this concerning the scribes. He said, rather than faithfully explaining the simple meaning of scripture, they delighted in complex musings, fanciful allegories, obscure insights, mystical notions, and the teaching of earlier rabbis. One thing we would know about Jesus, Jesus didn't come in teaching saying, based on such and such, or because Russell said, no, no, Jesus didn't come leaning on the rabbis before him. He taught with a different authority. And if we look at the gospels, his authority came from the father himself. The people saw that Jesus expounded perfectly and with conviction the scriptures. But something else happened that even sets the stage for what we have in chapter two, because it says that there was a demon possessed man that was in the crowd. Now they wonder where Jesus gets this authority from. A demon recognized Jesus and cried out, what have we to do with you, Jesus? What have you to do with us? Did you come to deal with us or hurt us or send us away? Here, even a demon recognized the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus do? Simply told the demon, brother, you need to walk. You need to come out of him. And the demon obeyed. What I love about Jesus and when he spoke, since we know that Jesus is God, in my mind, this is the same voice that said in Genesis chapter one, let there be light. And if we understand anything about Genesis, when God spoke, whatever he spoke had to show up. And so now when Jesus speaks to this demon, the demon can't do anything but obey. And so when the people saw this in the synagogue, they are amazed because not only is he teaching with authority, but even the demons have to obey him. Then Jesus goes to Peter's mother-in-law and, and he heals her because she had a fever. People were bringing lots of invalid and sick folk, sick folk to Jesus and he heals them. Jesus takes a break. He spends some time with the father. And we also see that a leper comes to Jesus. Jesus heals this leper. And we don't, it doesn't say, but it seems that Jesus left Capernaum for some time. But in chapter two, he's back there. And when he gets back, to Capernaum, his fame has spread and he's in this house and the house was packed. It was so packed that as I can only imagine like those doors were open that people were leaking all out into the streets down a few blocks. That's, that's the way I'm imagining this, right? Because Jesus is some about Jesus and we want to, we want to hear him. But what was he, what was he speaking on? What was he preaching? Chapter two doesn't say but I have to believe he was proclaiming the gospel based on Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15, where it says this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, I believe that Jesus is taking the opportunity here to proclaim the good news, calling people to turn from their sin and believing what God has, what he's, what he is doing and what he is about to do in and through him. He's calling people to turn from their sins. But as they're in this house, I want us to notice the religious leaders because we don't need to see them primarily as someone or some people who are in this crowd because they wanted to submit themselves to Jesus. We're going to see later that they were there trying to get some uh, some some different kind of information, what they can hold against him. But I think their 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 presence there shows us this. They wanted to hear his teaching, but proximity to Jesus is not the same as faith in Jesus. 
See, we could come into this great building on a Sunday because in the South, culturally, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to come to church, especially as good Southern people. I'm from the South. This is what I did. But simply coming through those doors does not make us a Christian. It does not. Being in proximity to the word of God does not make me a follower of Christ. To be a follower of Christ is to submit by faith, repenting of our sins, believing the gospel. But now while the crowd was before Jesus, the text says that four men decided they were going to carry their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Now, this, this is where I, I'm loving it. The story gets good because friends are so concerned about this paralyzed man that they each get a corner of this mat and say, we got to get you to Jesus, brother. We know he can help. But that was a problem. Maybe out down the street, they couldn't even get close to the door because so many people were there. Now, this is where I had to insert myself into the text to see which one of the people I would have been. Like, like, where am I in this story? Because I hate to be inconvenienced. I'm not saying you like to be inconvenienced. Uh, maybe you, maybe you're good with it, but I don't like it. So I'm thinking, what would I have done in that situation? Man, I would have probably went to my brother and said, excuse me, my brother. Um, man, there's too many people in here. We can't get to Jesus. So maybe we need to try another day. Maybe, maybe uh, uh, today is not a good day uh, or I would have done this. My brother, I, I have an appointment in a couple of hours and um, I, I can't miss that appointment. I mean, we, I tried. So look, you can't go anywhere. So why don't we just lay you out in front of the house? Because he has to leave. And and once he leaves, because he's Jesus, he, he'll see you and he'll probably bend down and give you a healing. That, that would have been me, but I'm so glad the four friends did not even come up with any of those ideas. They were determined to get their friend to Jesus. They were willing to, to inconvenience themselves to make sure they did whatever they needed to do to make sure that Jesus saw their friend. You see, they understood something. See, Jewish homes, on the side of Jewish homes, there would have been some steps that led to a flat roof. And this flat roof would have been made of mud and sticks. So I got to believe these brothers here plotted. They say, Jesus is right there. Okay, if we got on the roof right there, snatched a hole in it, and just start lowering him down. And whatever happened, this is what these friends did. They got to this roof, opened a hole in it. Started lowering the friends down as Jesus is teaching. People are listening. Mud and sticks hitting people on the head. The Bible says Jesus looked up, saw the, their faith and then said some words. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. So I have to believe that these four friends, they, they wanted to bring their friend to Jesus to have a physical healing. But Jesus bypasses initially a physical healing and speaks to a deeper need. He speaks to his sin and he forgave his sin. See, it was shocking to have mud and sticks hitting your head. But it was even more shocking to hear Jesus say, who many just saw as a mere man, say your sins are forgiven. And it is here that I believe that there's no greater need for humanity than to have sins forgiven. Because this is what we need to be reconciled with God. This is why Jesus came to earth. And this is what Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 19, when he said this. He said, all this 
is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, God reconciled us to himself through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. To have faith in Jesus is to believe this, that he can not only heal us of our physical distresses, but he heals us of our spiritual distresses. In my early years of school, I know they have many different ways now of teaching kids, which I think is amazing. But my teachers, all they had was a blackboard and some chalk and an eraser. Everyone used them. And so as kids, when they would give us homework early in elementary school, we would go do the homework. And, and every now and then the teacher would ask who wants to come to the board. And, you know, all the kids want to go to the board. We want to write on the board. Right. So sometimes I would get called to go write on the board. And inevitably, I'll get up there and do a math problem or write a sentence and I would mess up. Because the teacher would say that's that's incorrect. But then instead of me just going to sit down, the teacher would point me to something that was available. And that was an eraser. Because that eraser would be used to do away with the error that I committed on the board. See, forgiveness works the same way. Instead of an eraser, it's the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's a cancellation of our past sins, a deletion of an error. So is there anyone here this morning who has not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ who needs their sins forgiven? I point you to today to trust him. To place your faith in him and right in your seat, he would forgive you of your sins and now you will be a son and daughter of his. As I heard an old preacher say long ago, I pray that the hound of heaven would not leave you alone until you trust him. But also for us as believers, I want us to think about this. Who in our relationship circles needs to have their sins forgiven? How can we be intentional this week, today, to bring our friends to the one who has the answer for all of their questions of life, their sins, who can forgive them. I want us to think about a person that we can be intentional with to have a good conversation with about the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the text, not everybody sees their need for Jesus. Everybody doesn't. You see, and, and, and we see this in religious leaders. Look at verses six and seven. It says, but some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, based on Luke chapter five, we know that it was not just scribes who were in this house. Pharisees were also there. But who were the Pharisees and the scribes? Well, the Pharisees were the guardians of the legalistic traditions of first century Judaism. These were your most holy folk. These would be the folks that you would see walking down the street with a Bible under their arm and you ask them how they're doing. And the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, I'm blessed and highly favored. But this holiness was merely external. Hearts weren't changed. But then you had the scribes. See, they were the theologians of the day. These were your biblical scholars. These were the ones who were responsible to copy the word of God word for word and preserve the scriptures as well as interpret what it means to the people. See, they were the primary teachers of the day and they were present in this house to make sure that Jesus is not teaching something contrary to what they would have taught. 
So as I watch this scene unfold in my mind and the man being Lord, I can only imagine that these religious leaders are locked in. They're looking at Jesus. They see this man being Lord. What is he about to do now? And the next thing they hear is, son, your sins are forgiven. The only thing that these religious leaders heard was blasphemy. He can't say that. Because in the religious leaders' minds, there are a couple of ways that you could commit blasphemy. One is by denying the attributes of God. They, uh, they didn't hear that. The second way is adding attributes that God does not possess. They didn't hear that either. It's the third one they heard, and that is making himself on par with God. That's what they heard. Jesus is making himself equal with God. He deserves to die. Now, the scribes, they began to question in their hearts why he would say this, because only God can forgive sins. I think this is the exact point Jesus is showing them. You're right. Only God can forgive sins. I am God. See, their hearts were hard towards Jesus and his work. See, they came to the meeting not to get an understanding, but to get evidence. And now they think they have evidence to condemn Jesus. They felt that he did not have the authority to say the things that he said. In their minds, what he did was worthy of death, and they made sure that they opposed his work. Hamilton E. Holmes was a a man who understood opposition very, very well because in 1961, he and his wife integrated the University of Georgia. We know what that time was like. They integrated this school. And when he arrived, he was told by other students to go home. And it just wasn't go home. They used inflammatory language. You don't belong here. Go home, blank, 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 blank. They told him to get out of here, but he stayed. He didn't leave. In 1963, Hamilton Holmes graduated from the University of Georgia, and this is what his wife would say of him. She said he had quiet dignity, scholarship. He wouldn't let anything stand in the way of his desire to become a doctor. My question for us this morning is what does opposition to Jesus look like in our day? In our lives. See, now many of us, we, we see ourselves as good Christians, um, people who love Jesus. But but I think like the religious leaders, we can easily oppose God's work when it does not fit within our own established paradigm. See, my wife and I recently just returned from Africa, actually about a week ago. And as we were worshiping with our brothers and sisters in Christ, they worshiped in a way that was totally different from what we are accustomed to. But I can't go over there thinking that you're not supposed to do it that way because now I'm trying to impose on them a Western way of doing things. But I think we could bring that to the text. So I think it's important for us, instead of allowing our paradigm and our cultural bents to 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 impose itself on Scripture, I think we need to look at Scripture and and see our culture, see our paradigm, see our bents through the lens of Scripture. Because I think if we don't, we can easily find ourselves opposing God and his work. That does not discredit where we come from and who we are. But we need to have things rightly ordered. Instead of us saying, God, you can't do it that way. Come to God with an open hand and say, God, do it how you want to do it. But I want to see you clearly in the word. And finally, 
in Jesus dealing with these religious leaders, he now validated his authority to forgive sins. Let's look at verses 8 and 11 as we prepare to close. It says, right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Now, the scribes, again, they began to have a nonverbal conversation. They had it in their hearts. Instead of verbalizing their thoughts, they kept it to themselves. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. See, now, when Jesus asked this question, this should have tipped them off. Like, none of us in here knows exactly what the person sitting next to them is thinking. But if they opened their mouths and said exactly what you were thinking, I'm sure a lot of us would be weirded out real fast, real fast. But these guys, in my mind, like, if Jesus asked them a question, like, they should have known. Like, it's something different about him. How does he know what I'm thinking? Because God knows the heart of every human. He knows what we're thinking. See, Jesus, even though he tucked himself in flesh, he is God. And the attributes of God, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. In John chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, John tells us concerning Jesus. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So now Jesus asks them a question. He said, which which is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your mat and go home. Now, Jesus is setting the stage beautifully to validate that he has the authority to forgive sins. See, the religious leaders, they were upset that he, he, he equated himself with God. But that's the whole point. Because he claimed to be able to forgive sins was nothing less than claiming that he was God. Now, from a human standpoint. If he asks us this question, we must we must say this. Both of those questions are impossible for us. None of us can say to someone, your sins are forgiven, nor can we heal. But I think in context, Jesus said, now, which one of these is easier? Which one is easier to say to that man, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and go home. Take that mat and go to the house. In context, the easier thing to say is your sins are forgiven. Why? Because there's no evidence that it actually took place. You can't like I can't say to anybody, hey, your sins are forgiven, brother. No one can see that. The more difficult thing in this context is to tell a man to rise, take up his mat and go home. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Now, I don't know, but but I can only see that man laying down on his mat and the word of God speaking into that man. And this man who hadn't walked in, I don't know how long, got some strength in his legs. And because God said do something because it was a command, he could not disobey that command. That man stood up. He felt something in his legs. He probably hadn't felt in a while. And the very thing that he was laying on, he picked up and rolled it on his arm and went to the house. And this was in front of everyone. Now, the religious leaders, see, for them, if a person was sick, they thought that God was angry with them. And the only way that that person could be healed of their sickness or whatever they had, they first had to have their sins forgiven. Now, now that the man was healed, it's like Jesus said to that man, son, God is not angry with you. Come home. Don't be afraid. God ain't angry. Take up your mat and go to the house. I see. I think there's another story that we're very familiar with that rings of this. And that's the prodigal. 
See, we normally think it's one prodigal son, but there were two prodigal sons. But the one that frivolously just just spent all went to his dad and said, give me my money. I don't care if you die or not. That man came to his senses and he was like, man, I can go back home, but I ain't trying to go back and be a son. I'll go back and be a servant. So he rehearses this in his mind. But I love the picture because the father was waiting on him, probably in context, ran toward him, picked up his skirt and he saw his son. He said, no, no, you ain't coming here to be a servant, my brother. Uh, somebody go kill the fattened calf. We about to eat good today. Uh, somebody go get a robe. Somebody go get the ring. My son who was lost is now found. See, what I'm loving about this is that for each of us as humans, I think this is a beautiful picture because the Lord Jesus, when it paid the price for us, it shows us that he wants us in his family. All we have to do is trust him. It's not that he's angry with us, that there is a way for us to be made right with him. And I pray today for each uh, anyone here today who is questioning how God feels about them. I pray that you will look at this story and realize, no, no, he's not angry. He loves me. And if you don't know him, all you have to do in your seat, in your bedroom, in standing at the altar, whatever it is, you call out to him and he will welcome you into his family. Thank you.